<laughs> yeah, you just need to man up for your first British winter. That's all. Well, it's not a season up there. It just uh, the rain gets warmer and colder, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. This episode is brought to you by Offerzen, a South African recruitment startup for developers. Offerzen inverts the normal recruitment process. Instead of applying for jobs, 350 tech companies in Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Pretoria send developers interview requests with upfront salary info. For developers, it's completely free to sign up and use. In fact, you get 5,000 Rand if you take a job through them. Visit offerzen.com to sign up. That's O F F E R Z E N.com. Episode 60 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Tonight on the panel, I'm joined by Chantal. Hello. And Kevin. Hello from London. And our guest tonight is all the way from Atlanta, Lance Gleason. Hello, Lance. Hello. I like the fact that we've got oh. an equal representation of Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere on this podcast. Yeah. Always a good thing. <laughs> I must say, I, was, I worked it out, Lance is the first guest from the Western Hemisphere we've had, not the first from the Northern Hemisphere, unfortunately. Yeah, you have to qualify that with guest, right? Yes, that's, oh, that's what I said. <laughs> At least that's in my head. I don't know what came out of my mouth. Um, so <laughs> with that, that ado, Lance, I'm, in, I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, know you. Um, for those that don't, I guess as we go on, they'll figure out soon like why we've got somebody from the States on a South African podcast. But uh, I was thinking to give everybody a chance to get to know you a bit, why don't we start with a bit about your background? Tell us who you are, where you grew up, your studies, and kind of like your first experience with computers or electronics. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting, everybody has their own journey as far as how they get involved with computers and things like that. I think for me, what started it off was, well, when I was a kid, Initially, I wanted to get a video game system, and it just happened to be that my father had a little bit of foresight, and he said, okay, well, that's great. You can, we can get you some stuff that's related to computers that you can play games on, but instead of getting you something like an Atari or a Nintendo or something like that, we're going to get you a proper computer. And so my first one was a Commodore VIC-20, and that started this obsession. What is a Commodore VIC-20? Okay, so Vic Twenty. How I think you're probably familiar with the Commodore sixty four. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, so the Vic Twenty was a computer that came out before the C sixty four. It was like sort of the predecessor to that, and that was, <clears throat> and it kind of later on I ended up with a Commodore sixty four. But the Vic Twenty was the very first one, and so I had the tape deck that was loading games on it, and you could copy things, which was always quite fun, where you were copying. Like if you wanted to copy a game from a friend, even though, yeah, you're not technically supposed to do that. Um, we would get a double tape deck and we would just copy them and you'd hear the neat sounds and things like that. And it kind of started that whole passion with it, with the programming, with the basic and all of that. And from there? Um, from there, really, it was kind of an interesting journey. So I was kind of, I just really enjoyed them, really played with them quite a bit. Um, went through the normal high school thing, um, actually kind of, 
sort of branched out beyond just the tech and all that for a couple of years during high school. But then the the funny thing was, it was again, sort of a family thing that helped me to decide, yes, I definitely need to take this and do it because I did do a degree in this. Um, but it was a family business type of thing that came up that helped to kind of cement that desire to go and do this at university where my dad had a small business and he had a system that needed to be done. And he actually had a programmer that skipped out on him. And so myself and my uncle popped in to help sort of rescue the rescue this thing that was running his business. And from there I went and did the major and it's been my career ever since just in my love. Wow. What, what was that written in just for interest sake? Um, that was written in basic of all things. So you're talking old Microsoft technologies. These are the days of like 386s and things like that. And so we had a system that was custom written for doing some reports and things like that for the business. And at that point, basic was our primary thing. I mean, I'll never forget when I went to university, I heard on a few episodes back where some people were talking about Pascal and I was like, oh, that brings back memories <laughs> because I will never forget my first computer science course walking in and the professor's like, okay, you can't use GoTo. I'm like, what? <laughs> in the deep end, instantly. Well, exactly. And now it's like, I obviously you cannot even think about why would you use a GoTo in your code? But I just, I remembered that because you're used to kind of hacking around self-taught and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, hang on a second, you can do all this. And, and after your major, did you then join your dad in his business or did you head into industry? I headed into industry after my um, undergraduate, and um, my plan was always to eventually get somebody to fund it, and I did. Um, managed to find an employer that would help me pay for the um, the graduate degree. So I started off my first job at, out of university was working for Kodak of all things um, for satellite imagery, and then um, from there just kind of a, a step through a bunch of different corporate jobs. Everything from I worked for a defense contractor, Lockheed. Um, some banking companies, a healthcare company called McKesson, and probably one of my favorite jobs too was uh, CNN and Turner. And it was around that time when I finished my master's degree as well. And what kind of stuff did you do at CNN and Turner? Because I mean, I, I, like newsrooms, I understand is quite a hectic place for software developers. So CNN is big, obviously. And yes. the big, the project that I was working on, it was a lot of fun, actually. We were, at that point, and this was, you're talking like the mid 2000s, um, like, you know, 2004, 2005-ish, they still had all their video archives for everything that they, they, so what CNN will do is that they, when they're creating news stories or different productions, news productions, they have video archive footage that they will keep in a great big library. And up to that point, this was still sitting on these old beta SP tapes, which is a format that they used for years for um, basic for professional video production. And the project that I was working on was one of the first efforts to digitize that. And it was really pretty cool because we started with digitizing the new feeds that were coming in from news bureaus and things like that. And then later on digitizing the content that was already sitting in their library. So, I mean, it was a pretty massive effort dealing with a lot of, especially for the time, cutting edge types of things, trying to figure out how to do this. Um, and also got to touch some really interesting things. And I mean, how did the computers and software hold up? Because if I have to think back to that time, I think it's easy that more content comes in than what you could process, especially if you've got a back catalog to work through. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that's part of the other thing, though, too. There's some stuff that they would, um, it would always depend. There's some stuff that they would tag for, yes, we're going to archive this, and there's other others that, that's not going to. And it's kind of like, from the bureaus quite often, if you looked at the at the flow back then, especially, was that you would have, they were also at that point moving from using satellite links to get footage to using the internet, even back then. And so you would have things like, the first thing that would get archived for sure would be, any live link would come in, that would be archived. And after a period, they would also, there was a decision process they could go through to say, okay, this raw footage we wanna keep, this raw footage we don't, because they don't keep absolutely everything. That would be, they just, they wouldn't have enough to process it. But the idea would be that, for example, a, a bureau would, bureaus quite often would produce their own pieces. And we'd have a piece that we would send up to go, that would be sent up to go on the air. That immediately would be archived. But then later on, they may have other raw footage that they're bringing in or different other pieces like that. Yeah, I remember kind of from the time I watched CNN, if you see coverage of the same story, like day after day or hour after hour, how they change the perspective the whole time, at least through the footage. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it was interesting, too, because there was a lot of, at least at that time, and I, I honestly don't know what's happened because I left around 2008, but at that point, they were talking about how they were still just beginning to sort out how to get all the stuff from the bureaus, the archive footage that was sitting in the bureaus back to the mothership, so to speak. Um, because you had, like, for example, the Johannesburg Bureau um, had all this footage of Mandela. And, I mean, it they, they had two issues with it, because in that domain you have to have somebody go through it and add some metadata to be able to so that people know what's at certain points in the video now again today there's some technology that may that can help automate that a bit more but back then you were still dealing with that and they literally you would walk through the bureau i, I remember walking through the bureau and just seeing tape after tape after tape after tape of mandela and marlene had come with me and it was she she obviously having grown up in Pretoria, when all that was happening, was this like going, I would almost be willing to come down here and just archive this just because it would be so interesting to see, because it was just amazing to watch that. And so if you imagine that stuff sitting at bureaus from everywhere from Bangkok to Hong Kong to um, London to you name it, that was like one of the big problems that they were trying to solve at that point. Wow. Yeah, I know. And uh, okay, so I guess that that's old news after CNN and Turner. So after CNN and Turner, um, I started to get into, I did some work with, like, there was a local company in Atlanta where that was where I had my first Ruby job, um, a company called Mannheim OVE, um, did some work with GE and their Smart Grid initiative, and then finally went into doing my own thing as sort of my own freelance and now small consultant, very boutique consultancy. And tell us a bit about your consultancy and the work you've been doing. So these days, so we initially started doing complete Ruby work. Um, I had had a small startup, which is part of what led me to doing that. In fact, um, I was working for a corporate job and anybody that knows me knows that I'm a little bit of a contrarian and kind of not the type that does well with a button up shirt sitting in a corporate office and um, filling out my TPS reports. And so um, <laughs> I've, I, I, where's my red I'm sorry, I've just got a picture of you doing that right now. It's... <laughs> <laughs> kind of disturbing. <laughs> My stapler. Sorry, I, I stole that um, at last Refuser. I admit. <laughs> <laughs> gonna gonna burn the office down. <laughs> no, um, yeah, but it's it's definitely kind of it's it, that's never been my thing, and it was kind of interesting because initially I did the. 
I did the freelancing as a way to work more on the startup and also be doing everything with Ruby. And then discovered, then had decided, I want to start going to conferences and really started to enjoy them. And the rest is kind of history. And um, the year that I started freelancing, I went to a couple conferences down in South America, um, kind of just because I could. And then it really, that's what also led up to um, my first touch. I mean, I, and obviously I have a South African spouse, so that helps. But then my first sort of um, exposure to the South African um, tech community, which was Ruby Fusa, where absolutely amazingly, I somehow convinced Mark to, <laughs> with, a, with a talk proposal to let me speak. He just needed some more heads saying, we've got international guests. <laughs> now I'm not joking, which, which Fusa was the first one you came to? Uh, 2012. Yeah, I remember that one. I remember that one too. Was that the one that you spoke at, Kevin? No, my yeah. first one was 2013. That was the first one that I went to, first Ruby conference I went to. Ah, yeah. And I remember that talk very well because you gave one on TDD. Yes. Oh, our spec practices. Not, not specifically TDD. That's right. Yes. That's right. That's that right. was my first conference talk, yeah. Which was really good. I remember but the first thing I did is I went up to you and I said, you have something to say. I want to see... Give it more passion when you talk. I remember yeah, that I very remember specifically. You yes. to that. Oh, that was such a good time. Oh, that was. But that was 2013. So let's go back to 2012. Rewind. Tell us about your exposure. Okay. And so really what happened was, and it was kind of weird because I hadn't been to South Africa for a few years, in fact. Just other things that happened, family stuff and work and all that. And um, came down and spent what was it about 10 days with it and i was just i was blown away it was i mean that was very special for a number of reasons that was a my first conference talk ever ruby fusa and b um well also my first code retreat which happened to be with corey haynes which was just really special too and i mean i think that just from there i just began to meet some interesting people and kind of it led to me saying let me see now if i can convince mark to let me in the next <laughs> <laughs> the rest has kind of been history since then, really. Well, I didn't know that was your first conference talk. Yeah, yeah, that was my first. I had the only other thing I'd done prior to that was, I mean, my first talk that I ever did for anything professional was at a Java users group when I was first learning Ruby. And let me tell you, that was a horrible talk. Uh, and that's not just me saying, you know, being very critical. It was a bad talk. <laughs> But then I had taken a couple of years off, and the only other thing I had done was a couple of lightning talks, and then Ruby Fusa. Nice. Yeah, I'm trying to pull up the schedule for that year to see what happened and who spoke. But I think I was out of country that year, actually. Um, it might have been the only one I actually missed, sadly. <laughs> but uh, you know, kudos. It's, I mean, it's quite brave speaking overseas for your first conference talk. And my first conference talk was in Tokyo and it was like gut-wrenching. Um, you don't know where you are. <laughs> you don't know these people. You don't know if you're well-prepared enough and then you've got language barriers and everything to to cross. So well done. Uh, well, I, I would say though too, I think that your your first talk probably was a little bit more challenging from that aspect than mine because obviously I, I already had some context with the culture and everybody does speak English. So um, that does help too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Luckily, mine was just a lightning talk, but it was terrifying nonetheless. The at Kaigi, they the lightning talks are like a, after the keynote. It's the highlight 
of the conference and i did not know this and it's a proper game show like a japanese game show they have countdown timers on the screens and people cheer you and there's like a gong that goes off when your six minutes is over and you're done and you're out and you have to leave and the next person comes and sits you to turn it it was a lot of fun but it was very very frightening um but yeah i want to pull it back so so we've now alluded twice about marlene i'm, I'm curious how you guys actually met because that's such a Marlene's the reason and the family that you come back here so much and that you've made yourself part of our developer families. Yeah. So, I mean, it's actually quite funny when you tell the story because we met on the Onions personals <laughs> of all things in Atlanta. So she was living here. I was living here. And yeah, in essence, that was just we started dating and then just things went from there. Um, so it's not a crazy story, but that it just um, from there, I've always had a love of traveling. I mean, I had I. I did some of my university work in the UK, so that helped with it too. So it's like, you know, you get different types of Americans and things like that. And I've never been one who said that my roots are just firmly in one place per se. I've always had kind of, it's sort of that lit that fire in me. And then Marlene and I met. And so um, it made it quite nice because I've embraced her family and vice versa. And, you know, we're able to go both sides with that. And uh, your first trip here, not Fuso, the very first trip to South Africa. I'm kind of curious how that went. Oh, that went well. It was a, it was a unique. It was actually a kind of an interesting thing how the first trip went because at that point, um, it was in two thousand and seven, and it was under kind of a different set of auspices, I guess, because we'd been we hadn't been dating an incredible amount of time, but then her father had a medical emergency, so we ended up having to do a very last minute flight to kind of come over. But just from there, really enjoyed it though. I had. Um, her family is uh, from Pretoria, so of course we're behind the Bodovo's curtain and all that. And um, so they kind of introduced me to some of the, the things that are truly South African and some of the things that I think really make it special with all that, um, even with all the stuff that was going on. And so came over and that was my first exposure to Biltong and just the wonderful prize and things like that. And along with just the, the great culture with it. Um, yeah, and I think the rest, it's just kind of, you know, and it's sort of, it's been something that's just like kind of percolated from there. And, you know, the, it would have been nice to even be, be able to, and from there, I'd come over a, a couple of other times. Then, like I said, for other reasons, including jobs, and we were in the middle of a global recession and things like that, was not, did not have as many opportunities to travel over, but then kind of 2012 helped to kind of break that free, I guess, as you would say. So I'm curious, compare our prize do you like a classic American barbecue? Um, there's no comparison. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. I mean, now, all right. So I'll say something and hopefully, I mean, there, the Southern Hemisphere, I think to a certain degree, though, too, has like, there's a special tradition around what South Africans call braai. And I mean, the Argentinians do it, too. Not so sure about the Australians, actually, not I think about it. But um, I mean, in America, it's usually, I mean, part of it is it's, you've got a faster culture and things like that, too. Um, but the South African braai, it's much more of a, it's like ingrained in the culture is the best way to put it. You have um, somebody who's usually a braai master and they have a certain way of doing things. Um, you're, they're usually using yeah. something that's either wood fired or charcoal. Um, and it's kind of, it's this whole, and the meat is actually better and less expensive versus in the united states it's kind of more just like oh okay we have a gas grill for the most part you throw something on there you have some people that kind of get into it but it's not really as much as part of the tradition i guess is the best way to put it so it's just cooking outdoors kind of 
Yeah, it's exactly. It's kind of cooking outdoors. I mean, you know, you might do some burgers or things like that. And but it, it's not the same type of tradition, I guess, is the best way to put it. And that probably even and I, you know, I've been one that's been very vocal with this one. It's like uh, then in America, we also have this thing called beef jerky and beef jerky is vile compared to biltong. I mean, it's just it's. <laughs> and speaking of biltong, I was going to be my next question. Um, in your travels around you, where is the best place to get biltong or a few good places to get biltong for the listeners? Um. Well, so in my in my view, there's the best place that I found hands down is Kingsmeat Deli um, in Rasmakloof. That place, um, and I think they have a couple of satellite locations as well. Um, but I think out of every place I've tried, that is probably the best. Um, there are some others that I think I've had some from. I've had some built on from those places as well that people have brought. But I always like my my first place whenever I can is to go to Kings and <laughs> get their stuff. Yeah, no, I can. Uh, vouch for you and say that's true how many times we've planned when you land in the country and that's like nope first first to Pretoria <laughs> before anything else <laughs> that's easy. yep yep get over there get some of that bring some of this get some of the spice and then whenever I'm coming back I'm always getting the spices and things like that which you want to do as well and I'm um, trying to make it here that was interesting because uh Mark Heiliger so he from Ruby Fusa his wife is um he and his wife are starting to share some recipes with me because they've been making a lot here stateside, which is really cool. So bringing a little bit from South Africa over. Nice. Now you guys should uh, change the culture for us there. So by the time by the time we can visit, at least we've got a decent bolt on to eat. Yeah. It'll be reasonable, I think. Um, the, the only thing I will say, though, is that with that being said, though, I'm not sure if we could ever fully replace Karoo beef, but that's another... <laughs> or any Karoo meat. I mean, the Karoo lamb's also amazing. And ostrich is also quite nice. So That and Springboks. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the Feinbos in the Karoo that they eat. I mean, it's such a unique vegetation and that contributes to the different different um, tastes. And I just got to pick. Yeah, Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that, that will, I'll leave that one for later. I want to take a moment to tell you about Officing. OfficeZen connects you with more than 350 South African companies that are hiring developers. Instead of dealing with recruiters or applying to dozens of jobs individually, on OfficeZen, companies apply to you. To get started, just sign up on OfficeZen.com and build a profile. Once you're ready, your profile is made visible to the companies hiring on OfficeZen. Companies interested in you will send you an interview request with details about the job, including upfront salary info. So if you're looking for work or want to hire developers, check them out at OfficeZen.com. That's O-F-F-E-R-Z-E-N.com. So other than Fusa, I mean, you've, you've done several trips here and I've just been amazed at least my experience with your last two that I got to spend some time with you is you quite a connector of different communities here. Um, and just to give people some context, like we had, uh, when we had Rebecca Franks on for the Android show, you set that up for us, got us introduced and um, you introduced us to Suzonki Rising um, as well. And so it's amazing that all the way from Atlanta, you connect the dots here locally. Like, what's your secret? How do you do that? So it's interesting. Marlene and I have talked about that. And I think some of it at times is that you get, I think part of it is just that I, I have a natural curiosity and I'm not afraid to kind of reach out to people and talk to them. Plus, some of my own interests, even too, have evolved over time. And, you know, part of it is, it, 
I think in, in some regards that might be one of the one of the big things with it. That and just um sometimes just saying I'm gonna contact people and see where I can get with it. You know, honestly I'm there are times when I, I it, it surprised me, I guess, is the best way to put that too, because yeah, I remember it was like I was when we were talking about some of the Android stuff, and there still is a hope that I have, by the way, too, that I would love to eventually see some sort of a mobile development conference happen in South Africa. And when I started talking with people about it, I was just like, well, I don't know, let me just be crazy enough to start talking with people about this. And before long, it was like, oh, wait, do you know this person? Do you know this person? You should be talking type of thing. So, I mean, it's really, it's one of these things where um, I don't even know how to describe it, really. It's kind of, um, I guess some of it's been my personality. I think, well, okay, stepping back a bit, I think that one thing that really put me in kind of a position to be able to do that, and it just sort of naturally evolved, was that it was one thing to come over and speak at Ruby Fusa, which I did for a few years. And then after the, I think it was the third time I spoke at Ruby Fusa, if I remember correctly, uh, was it 2013? Oh, wait, was it 20? No, it was 2014. 2014. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after 2014, um, I'd been doing this thing called Ruby Decamp in the United States. And the founder of that, Evan Light, wanted to, he he wanted to see that movement grow to somewhere else. And Mark had been talking for a while about getting some sort of an unconference thing going. And so I just kind of bugged him a bit about, hey, why don't we, let's make this happen. And then I was like, no, let's really make this happen. And we did make it happen. And um, with a lot of work for from people on the ground in South Africa, because I mean, like, um, you know, Hannes Benson, for example, I mean, if it wasn't for him, that Ruby Decamp would not have happened the three years that it's happened over there, because he did a lot of work. But I think beyond that, um, that opened up a lot of other doors into the community, I guess, with that too, because we went to Ruby D camp and then Mark was like, look, I need help organizing um, Ruby Fusa. I said, sure, I'll be happy to help along with a bunch of other people. And from there, it's like, just, we made these absolutely fantastic connections, I guess. Um, it was through that, that I met, um, it was through the D camp that I met Candace Mesk who introduced us to Mandla, um, and it was also through that event that we ended up meeting like Lydia Abel from um, from Ort in Cape Town. And it's just kind of, I think a lot of connections has kind of started connecting. A lot of things came together through that, I guess would be the best way to put it. And then I found myself starting to naturally veer more towards doing mobile, IoT and wearable type of development. And um, my first thought was, well, let's see what's happening in South Africa and see how I can kind of weave all that stuff together. And that's really how the how things came together with Rebecca and everybody else. I just I reached out to her. I said I, I happened to come across her name before before she became a GDE because of Book Dash. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. And that's also and it ties together with some of these other things and kind of the rest as well. The rest became what it is. So I want to take a second and just chat about the decamp stateside uh, and yeah let's tell people a bit about what the format is uh, what everybody gets up to how long it is when it happens that kind of thing oh yeah yeah so what ruby decamp is is it's the idea behind it is that we go to these conferences quite often and um in most conferences it's about you have a talking head um somebody that's getting up on stage and giving a talk with a bunch of people in the audience listening and while those parts of the conference are good, um, 
One piece that a lot of us have found to be very beneficial are what we call the hallway track or the hallway conversations that you have either in between sessions or when you're skipping out on sessions <laughs> that sometimes happens. Um, and so the whole concept behind that was let's let's create a format that has more of those hallway conversations and in fact is all about hallway conversations. And so the idea behind Decamp is that it's sort of an Evan who founded it calls it like sort of a geek commune. And we've sort of <laughs> um, come up with a <laughs> we've come up with a, a South African, you know, a version with the South African spin on it here in South Africa as well with this. But the whole idea behind it is that you know, the format is that um, you have a first day is code retreat um, where everybody's working on the game of life and pairing and doing different things like that. And then the second and third days are open spaces where the beginning of the day, everybody pitches different topics that they would like to talk about more. Um, we do dot voting to figure out which ones should be kind of the main sort of program for the day. And by, and then after that, we just break up and it, there are 20 minute sessions really short with the idea being just enough to kind of get you interested, but not enough to do a deep dive. And then, from there, you might find yourself skipping out on half of the afternoon sessions because you had a really interesting one in the morning, which is fine or whatever. But the, the whole idea being to get people talking. And then another key thing with it, too, is that we purposely do not get catering because the idea behind it, because a lot of developers are known to be sort of introverts. I mean, there are a few exceptions. I'm a bit more extroverted than a lot. But when you have something like a um, where you're not getting catering. And so everybody needs to pitch in to help create, to cook meals and things like that. It's sort of an easy icebreaker to get, to have, start talking with people and to get to know them. And how remote is the camp there by you guys? So in the U.S., it's, um, it's at this place called Prince William's um, State Forest Park. And it's a little bit less remote than the South African version. Um, it's about maybe a 30 minute drive south of DC, like literally from the Ronald Reagan airport, which is like in the middle of the city. It's yeah, it's about a half an hour drive just down the interstate. And if you go across the exit, you're over at um, like a, the Quantico military base or something like that. So it's, it's, it's remote enough because it's actually, it's pretty primitive as far as a camping and things like that go. Um, you basically pitch up and you have this, uh, you just have a cot that has this sort of rubberized mattress thing on there. You need to bring your own bedding. Um, it's a shared bathroom for everybody who's there. So you have, we have, D-Camp in the U.S. is roughly just a little shy of 80 people. Um, but it kind of, which kind of makes it nice. And it's also bring your own internet. So bring your own Wi-Fi hotspot or whatever for that type of thing. And so it's kind of the best of both worlds. You're not overly far away, but you are kind of roughing it for the weekend. Oh, okay. I was under the impression for some reason it was really like remote, where we at least still have 4G from null spread coming over the hill. Yeah, no, and we, we still have uh, 4G at um, the one in the US as well. I mean, the Nelspread is actually very close. So it's a little bit, the the, the accommodation in Nelspread is a little bit nicer, but it's, uh, they're both, they're both, but you know, it's, it's its own flavor. The South African one has its own flavor and the US one has its own flavor. Yeah, so it's, our flavor generally has a lot more Brian in it. Well, there's that too. That, that goes without saying. We do have a guy that brings, he actually does, so there's there's like this pulled pork barbecue thing that they do in the southeast part of the U.S. And there's one guy who every year does this whole big, like, 
it's tough to even describe, but this whole big thing where he does a big pulled pork thing um, with it, which is pretty good. But out of the two, I'm definitely still South African Bry hands. <laughs> legendary Rob. Yeah, legendary Rob. Uh, Bry master year after year after year. And Hannes is also a champion for just, it's he's so selfless. Eh? You don't hear anything. And then the next moment, the dates are announced and up to 60 people can just go and have an awesome time in Elspeth, including shuttles from Oatambo. It's fantastic. So for the listeners who are keen, it's the first weekend in September generally, so keep your eyes open for next year. Yeah, a great event. And I'm hoping it some year to eventually be able to try to get Evan out to it. That would be the absolute ultimate, but we'll keep trying. Yeah, definitely do. And uh, I guess I want to pull us a bit more towards the stuff you've been doing. Uh, you kind of alluded to already, but I mean, like September-ish, um, I dragged you to House for Hack and you brought with you a bunch of NeoPixels and who knows what else. Um, you've really been into this wearables um, for the last couple of, I guess, years. Why don't you tell us a bit about, about that, what you do with it and, and just like what wearables actually are? Yeah, so I mean, that, that's kind of been a really, it's it's been an interesting thing where we, in kind of, I guess I'll start with how we even got into it too, because it was, we for a long time, we were doing a lot of Ruby development and then decided that we wanted to start to shift towards the mobile. I mean, I'd always been kind of a big freak on the gadgets and things like that. And I looked at also, you know, where does it look like um, there's going to be a lot of growth and it definitely is in that area. And we ended up kind of choosing, getting into the wearables. I think Google Glass and some of the smartwatches really helped to sort of push me over the edge with that one because I, it, anybody that knows me, sees me around, knows that I love wearing my glass um, and things like that. And so really, I guess when you get into what are wearables, that, that gets to be a really interesting and very deep discussion because you're talking about, in essence, these small, well, you're talking about small electronic, there's some, well, I, I should back this up a little bit. If you talk to some of the people like from some of the universities and things like that, they'll say, well, technically you could even say a pair of glasses is a wearable device. And that is true. That is actually one of the first wearables were things like glasses. But in the context we talk about today, we're talking about small electronics that you wear to do something. And that really fits into a couple of categories because you have, um, on one end, you have uh, wearables that are very small and very focused. And so if you think about something like your Fitbit or um, you know some other type of a fitness tracker, that's something that's very small and very focused and does one thing, but it doesn't have a display. It doesn't have a lot of electronics in it. And so you might use that for, for everything from gathering health information. There's a really cool device out now. Um, mindfulness has become a really big thing. And there's a really cool device called the Spire that what it does is it'll grab just your breathing rate, um, your motion, and then it also has a temperature sensor in it. And the idea behind those is you can wear them almost all the time because you only have to charge them once a week or something like that. Now, on the other end, the other end, we have other devices, which it's kind of ironic because the device that first got me into this was the Google Glass and some of the smartwatches. And what's interesting about those is that they are they are devices that have literally they they are just a smaller they're they're in essence a mobile phone that's just with slightly um, less advanced specs that you're either wearing on your wrist or on your head or something like that. Um, glass was literally a Galaxy Nexus that was just put into a different form factor when you really boil it down, minus the display, which is smaller. Um, and then if you look at an Android, um, Android Wear watch or an Apple watch or something like that, it's the same type of thing where 
it's it has a similar specs to just a lower end mobile phone where you're talking about a half gig of ram four gigabytes of ssd memory on the device um so yeah it's there's a it's kind of there are a lot of different i guess there, there are a lot of different directions you can go with it too because i'm trying to think some of the other interesting things about it i mean the other one of the other big transitions when we started to go towards wearables is the interface and things like that because it's not a um we're used to using small phones with these immersive very immersive types of um sort of interfaces where you have to be staring at the device all the time to use it and the phone these wearables are starting to kind of drive these new trends in it i guess too as well so um sounds like they're quite a usability challenge there big one it's well i shouldn't say it's a big usability challenge it's a it's a different type of a challenge. Um, so with a phone, we have all the screen real estate. So the idea, but all right, stepping back for a minute, if you think about if you're using something like, uh, let's say that you're on some sort of a web property and it's on a laptop or a desktop screen of some sort, when we're using that interface, we're used to having a lot of screen real estate and we can put a lot of information on that screen. Now, when we go to a mobile device, however, the first thing that we have to do is we have to say that even with the biggest phone, even with your iPhone 7 Plus or the Google Nexus um, 6P or something like that, you don't have as much real estate on your screen and you start having to sort of eliminate certain things so that you can get people the information or the, um, the data that they need without having to have the superfluous stuff because again you're you're having a screen limitation but when you get to something like a watch so if we if we boil that down to the next level which is a watch or something like that you're talking about okay now we've got this device that you're wearing on your wrist and you're dealing with so one other thing that i left out with that is when you start to talk about a mobile interface versus a desktop interface battery starts to become an issue as well and with a watch that even becomes more acute because now you're dealing with a device that's small, which means you don't have as much room for a battery on the device. So it's a matter of saying, okay, we, you might do different things with a wearable device. And more importantly, I think too, there are certain things that, that the wearable device would not be good for because for example, I would not recommend surfing the web on Google Glass or a watch. And in fact, most don't allow you to do that for that very reason. So what is a, like other than Fitbits that we all kind of know, what else seems to be a good fit for wearables? Or where's the space kind of leading towards? That's the million dollar question. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I was at a, it really is right now. I mean, that's the interesting thing. And I'm not even sure the best in the end. We, we have some ideas as far as where it's going, but we're still figuring that out as an industry right now. Um, the smartwatches I think are definitely one. I still think that the smart glasses have an application, though I don't think it was initially what Google Glass had envisioned. Um, but with the with the other, especially the more focused wearables, um, it, it's kind of interesting. So I was at a conference out in um, Silicon Valley, was it late this past July? And we we had some interest. We had some panel discussions on this, and I think that the general the general thing has been that 
where one area for growth, for example, is medical, medical devices that can do things like say, oh, hey, you've got a, um, you know, maybe it's determining if somebody is, if somebody has AFib and they're having an issue with their heart rate on a continuous basis, or perhaps there's actually one device now that's out that's in the process of getting FDA approval, which can detect if somebody detect early signs of a seizure. Um, but the the challenge with that is that it's a much higher barrier to entry. And kind of to put some you know context around this, I guess, is that I was having a, a conversation with, um, for example, like some of the the founder of the Spire of Spire company that's doing a mindfulness um, wearable device, and he was saying about how. So there it is, somebody who's deep in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, which is where usually if there's if you're going to get investment for a startup, you're likely to get it there first. And he was saying during the past year, there was there were for all intents and purposes, there was almost no investment that went into wearables because we're sort of in the trough of the Gartner hype cycle with it. And let's face it, we don't need another fitness tracker um because that's where a lot of people were initially going with it was like they were creating different fitness trackers so we have like you know 10 different fitness trackers and then you go to ces and that was kind of interesting too where i saw like they had a bunch of pet trackers too and even though that fits in with like sort of my own desire we need something a better story than that one um so i mean i think i've seen some interesting applications with it too though for vr which that could be a direction um so I, I think the, the jury is still out. We're still figuring out exactly. But if I was to say what's one extremely compelling thing, it's probably healthcare related first. But then also I've seen some other applications that may show some promise, like uh, warehouse workers. Um, I've seen some people looking at putting a wearable on warehouse workers to be able to help determine like are the condition, the working conditions such where they're not as comfortable where you're likely to have more workman's comp claims or different things like that, which might be interesting as well. I must say industrial applications that go through my head now. I mean, you can have like all kinds of air quality sensors of people are work, working around chemicals and radiation if they do something like that. So, but that's, yeah, it's quite interesting. Like I said, we've got enough fitness trackers for now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, there, it's the nice thing about that is it's actually when you get down into the technology, it's not as it's not as complex as you might think to create a fitness tracker, at least a very basic one, um, which surprised me when we first got into it because I thought, what are they doing with all that? And then I looked at oh, three axis accelerometer with a little bit of um, just a little bit of mass that you basically can just take off of a. You don't even have to calculate it yourself. You can grab it off of a preset formula that somebody's done, and you have a very basic tracker. Or Stack Overflow. Exactly, Stack Overflow. <laughs> uh, if somebody wants to play with wearables, I mean, be it if they want to take on the Fitbits or make something for healthcare or industrial, or even just do something decorative with LEDs and conductive thread, like where do you recommend somebody start? Oh, that's a funny leading question. Um, <laughs> so there's one platform that we use a lot. Um, it's by a company called Ambient Lab, and it's called MetaWare. Um, it's probably one of our favorites for using it because of for a couple of reasons. A, their sensors are extremely small. And B, they don't require you to have to learn a bunch of C. So backing this up a little bit, when you're doing development with wearable device, or when you're doing a lot of development with these smaller boards, which we call microcontrollers, um, quite often, like if it's an Arduino or something like that, 
you need to do you need to learn another language, which um, in the case of an Arduino is going to be C plus plus. The metawares are really nice because they abstract that away from you and they give you an API that you could use if you're doing mobile development. It's with either iOS or Android. There is a plugin for Cordova that um, we've helped them to work on. And they're also providing some, there's also some work afoot to even provide um, integration with some other languages if you want to integrate them in with, or you want to work with them communicating with something like a Raspberry Pi or um, just your laptop even. And so it's a really easy sort of low barrier to entry way to at least begin to play with the sensors and be able to begin to get into it. Yeah, those things are interesting. I remember when you had a bunch of them, you had HouseVac, they are so small. Like, describe how they look and, and kind of what you can do with them, the built-in sensors, the add-ons. So, I mean, that that's what's really cool about them. You're talking about literally not that much larger than the size of probably, so I'm thinking in terms of a U.S. quarter. Um, I'm trying to think of what coin I could use from the South African context, but something not that in essence they're not that much larger than a small battery like a small what they would call a cr uh 2032 or something like that so a small button battery and the capabilities it's built in just out of the box are pretty amazing if you think about it because you're talking about it has a bluetooth radio on it it's bluetooth low energy they um the base unit comes with an accelerometer and what they call it through which and for those that are not familiar with that an accelerometer is a sensor that um detects motion so it detects if you're if you're you have movement on an x y and a z uh coordinate system and then it also has a thermistor which can tell things like temperature and um then it also has a bunch of what they call pins so they're gpio pins and if for people that are used to using or playing with things like arduinos it's just another way to sort of uh, allow you to attach other sensors to it and they also have um they have upgraded models that have additional sensors beyond that so you can get ones with um there's one model that's going to be coming out early next year that's going to have a galvanic skin response sensor along with a heart rate sensor there are ones that have um, pressure sensors. There's one that has an additional where they, instead of just having a three axis accelerometer that does the three axes, it also has a gyroscope, which gives you improved accuracy of motion. Um, you can get light sensors on them. And because it's a small package, you could also combine that board with something else. Um, if you've got some soldering skills, you can add other sensors to it, which is kind of fun. And because it's taking care of all the Bluetooth sort of communication, again, it's not that difficult to integrate that in with a mobile app. And probably the most ridiculous example of that was the um, the shirt that I had at Ruby Fusil last year, where I had hooked it up. I had I had, an, I had this. I took a MetaWare and attached these things called NeoPixels, which are they're these LEDs that you can, can you can turn into different colors by controlling the RG and B value of the LEDs on them. And so what I did is I hooked my shirt up to a bunch of those and then um, had that set up in my Android application where if I get a notification saying, hey, you just you just received a Twitter message from something or somebody, it would change the color of the shirt, which is totally ridiculous, but just totally fun. Um, and there's a lot of possibility of different things you could do with that as well. Now with that, I will say with that too, by the way, we use conductive thread and there are other mechanisms that might be a little bit more reliable, but. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess you need to be aware of the security, otherwise the conference attendees hack your T-shirt. 
Hmm, I wonder how that happened. <laughs> yeah, that was a funny story, too, because that was exactly it. So I'm creating this prototype, and I did not change anything on the board whatsoever. And so um, I had given another metaware to another uh, one of the other attendees, and actually Kenny was sitting right next to him. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how this happened. And all of a sudden, they, they started, I, I started noticing other LEDs on the board that weren't meant to do that, like lighting up and going on and off. And I was like, ah, you guys... <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that does that does show something to think about a funny demo is one thing but if you're collecting like health information of somebody their heart rate and, and skin temperature and whatnot like you've got to be so careful with this stuff oh yeah no that is definitely a concern i mean that's the one thing and that goes beyond wearables as well that's an iot concern um, where we're putting all these new, very small devices on networks um, or communicating with them in so somehow. And so you have to look at what makes sense as far as how do you secure these things. Um, if you're, and it kind of, some of that also depends on just what it is. I mean, for some items, security, like for example, with my shirt, security through obscurity would have solved that problem. Um, but then with other devices where you're dealing with possibly sensitive health information, then you might want to do something different. Um, but it is something that's actively being discussed. And I mean, for sure, like, let's say that you're using a wearable to control some sort of a medical device. Now you have a much bigger issue and a much bigger concern with that. And other than the MetaWay, if it, do you know of any uh, kits that's available here? I mean, I, I remember we kind of scoped out the available stuff in South Africa. So, so for wearables, I mean, there are two directions you can go right now that are the easiest. Um, <clears throat> but you have, you have the metaware that you can buy. You can order them. You have to get them from the U.S., so unfortunately, but you have that. Um, Adafruit does create some kits, too, if you want to go more of an Arduino direction with it. Um, the one big sort of caveat with that is that out of the box, you're not going to have any network. You're, gonna, you're not going to have any connectivity to any other device. You would have to add that on. So it is a little bit of a larger barrier to entry to get things going with that. Um, but they do have a lot of kits. Um, I think the Adafruit ones have tended to concentrate more on sort of like costume design and cosplay and things like that, which, and, which isn't a bad thing per se, because sometimes it's kind of a great bridge drug to get into the more serious applications with it, where you start off just playing with the technology and creating something completely ridiculous and then later on going, okay, so now what's more of a serious application I could do with that? Yeah, it's like a hello world. Well, the L yeah, and an LED is a hello world. I mean, that's exactly it, where first you get an LED going, and then from there you kind of, you, you can take it beyond that. I mean, an interesting thing with this, it's kind of it dovetails in with this a bit, is that during the Ruby, this past Ruby D camp, we ended up a, another attendee and myself, she and I came up with this idea well, it was initially her idea, and then I kind of expanded on it as the best way to put it, where what if we could create this device that could allow conference badges to light up? And so got to thinking a bit more, and we ended up using this um, device called a, I don't know if you've ever heard of the ESP8266s, or um, they're also known as the Node MCUs. Um, what they are, which is kind of cool for those that haven't, is it's a it's just a small board that has Wi-Fi built in. And what's really neat about them is that you can get them very inexpensively. To kind of put this in perspective, a MetaWare, you're talking about a minimum of 40 US dollars and you can buy Node MCUs out of China for somewhere around like $4 a piece if you really shop. 
And so we said, so we, we ended up doing was we bought a bunch of those and then we bought a bunch of um, just small four by four NeoPixel arrays for like another four US dollars and created these small little badges that <clears throat> we did a workshop where people could create a small badge and begin to get it doing some things and communicating to a network. And so it can be just something even as small as that, where you're just creating a small badge that you carry around. It may be a little bit clunky as a prototype, but it's kind of something to kind of get you started. It's inexpensive and it's very inexpensive. And then later on, you can look at how do you miniaturize that or what are other applications of it? Yeah, and no, I'm just curious because I'm always looking for an excuse to get me started with something hardware. And uh, yeah, I mean, some of this just LEDs and, and Halloween costumes and like Africa Burn and anything else, there's some fantastic stuff people do with LEDs. So it's like a great starting point to just get your toes wet. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you don't, and a lot of the skills that are, the only difference between where, so this is the other thing too, the only difference between wearable applications and IoT applications is just what the domain is that you're applying it to. Well, okay. That and with a wearable, ultimately, you're looking for a small device, and so you're going to have additional power constraints. But then again, you might have power, different power constraints for an IoT device, depending on what it is. And so, I mean, a lot of the skills are definitely transferable, because especially if you're not going with the metaware, well, even if you are going with the metaware, too, the concepts are the same as far as how do I use NeoPixels? How do I wire them together? Um, and if you're using something like the Node MCU, how are you? It's you're going to program it the same way. It is it just as you might. You're going to have a different application with it. And um, so, I mean, there's a lot of it there. It's it's a great way. You could start with a complete desktop based app, or not desktop. You could start with a sort of a more of a um, IoT based application, and then figure out how to apply it to the wearables. Um, of course, NeoPixels are just a lot of fun too. And they what's really cool about the neopixels i think as well with that is that they are all that a neopixel is is that's a brand name for adafruit's product you can get generic ones which is what we did for our little workshop that we ended up doing that um right now it looks like we're probably going to do that for refusa too that it's the idea behind it is you, you buy these inexpensive parts and you just create something just random and then start to play with it and with NeoPixels, you can buy these long strips. I picked up a set for 28 US dollars, I think. And so it's got 100 NeoPixels on it. And from there, you can hook that up to one of these little Node MCU modules. You could hook it up to a Raspberry Pi Zero. You could hook it up to a, um, what else could you hook it up to? An Arduino or something like that. And just start to play around with it. And you could either, you. and what's nice about that too is it, they have interfaces with a lot of different languages. So you can interface that with Ruby. You can interface it with um, JavaScript with Node.js types of plugins. Some the ESPs even have some JavaScript uh, firmware that's written for it. Um, Lua is a first-class citizen with that. So there are a lot of different ways to sort of get started and start to play with this stuff. Now, there's some great tutorials on Adafruit where they do those persistence of vision uh, type displays with those NeoPixel strips. And it always looks amazing. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. The, so the persistence of vision is interesting because now, so one thing that you don't want to do with that if you're using that, so NeoPix, there's a refresh rate that they have on these LEDs. Um, the, 
NeoPixels don't work well for that, but there's another type and I'm forgetting, I'm just, I'm drawing a complete blank on the name of it, but there's another type that they use for that, that is really that you can't, where you can use those for the, the persistence of vision types of things. And I haven't created one yet, but they are, it's a fascinating technology. I've, I mean, I've seen some demos with that. There was a company that was, that specializes in persistence of vision displays. They were at CES and they had these really cool POV things that would almost look like they were floating in midair, but you could do everything from, you can put these devices on your, like the wheel of your bicycle or something like that. And then it looks like you have an image, like in your wheel when you're riding and things like that. And they're just wild. Yeah, I think the bicycle ones to me are the, are more fun and entertaining than shop front displays. Cause it's also like a nice safety feature other than turning it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Precise. It's yes. So it's, it's definitely that they, um, I think the other one is that I'm trying to think of some other interesting applications with that. I mean, I, there's stuff that I, you could use it for that. You could even just use it for an interesting display to get people's attention or something like that too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. It's like, I, you know, the, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's definitely just interesting stuff. I haven't had like much experience using wearables or, um, know that many people who have them. So I'd like to know about the accuracy of some of them because I just read an article about how maybe that the heart trackers aren't that accurate and things like that. There is an issue with accuracy with it. So in the US in particular, one thing that we have to worry about quite a bit is that there's, depending on how you use a device, there is FDA approval that you might have to go for to develop devices. And so the consumer grade devices have a different set of constraints and often than a medical device. So when you're talking about things like a Fitbit, when you're talking about thing, devices like a, um, I'm trying to think when you're talking about devices like a um, heart rate tracker, even that's in your, um, on your watch or something like that, they, there's, there's a wide variance. I think it's something like it can be 75% to 80% accurate, but it depends. Um, but like, for example, the Fitbits, they use, their costs, because you're selling to consumers and you're trying to hit a certain price point, they don't put the most advanced sensors in there. And they're specifically trying to avoid the extra certification that you would have to get to have a more accurate medical type of device. And so that is a concern when you're doing health things. And that's why they usually say this is a, this is to be used for fitness tracking to help give you, to help you gauge how you're doing with your workouts, but it's not meant to use, for example, to make a medical diagnosis or something like that. Though there is a, we're trying to take the, there are many that are trying to take it in that direction, but it's going to, you're going to be looking at more accurate devices and higher price points and things like that because of those concerns. I guess if the devices are at least consistently inaccurate, you can use them for, <laughs> to base your training on. You can. I mean, again, there's something that you can, you can use to indicate how well you're doing. But like one joke that I always say with a Fitbit is that if you want to run a marathon, put your Fitbit in a dryer, in a clothes dryer, and just let it run for half an hour or a couple of hours. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite an evil hacker. <laughs> yep, that's, I mean, that's the thing. But I mean, it's the, it's a limitation of the sensor they put in it. I mean, if you look at their cost to manufacture them, you're looking at probably, uh, I'll bet you they, they're probably, they're, they're, their cost to actually manufacture that device is somewhere between 10 and $15. And yet they're charging you a lot more than that for it. Whoa, Yano, that's insane. So I guess it means that just every device people should be aware that 
I guess there's a disclaimer about it, about how accurate it is and things like that. Exactly. That's the whole thing with it. And consumer grade is going to be very different from medical grade. Um, but part of the reason why you've seen the consumer grade first is because there's a lower barrier to entry with the consumer market than there is when you get into medical degrade, grade devices. I guess in the box, there's a, a UALA that you agreed to by switching it on. <laughs> and just like with most of them, nobody ever read it. Yeah, they usually ask for your firstborn and, you know, stuff like that. But yeah. <laughs> cool. I want to it just back to community a bit for for closing um that was interesting because i know this is stuff that you dig in and i'm curious about it we've had lots of hardware chats on the show before but um for you now looking at the outside in well i i guess sorry i don't mean that insulting you're so part of the communities here but having seen like all our different communities from the outside in what i want to kind of it's a two-part question like what do we do well um, that you can encourage people to carry on with, like kind of what sets us apart or what at least sets us at the same level as what's happening overseas. And what could we do better for like for the local dev scene to just step it up and then be more competitive on the international stage? So that's a really interesting question because that's actually... Um, that, so one of the reasons I keep coming back beyond the family connections, obviously, too, and things like that is that... There, there, so there, there are a couple of things that are just really that just stand out with South Africa right away. First of all, I mean, I think that the community, there's a nice balance between having fun and being professional, if that makes any sense, which is something that I just really appreciate. And also, I have been overall just extremely impressed by the uh, sort of the, I guess, I'm trying to think of the best word to describe it. I mean, just the overall, the quality of people that I've run across from a, from a technical standpoint. Um, I mean, I think that South African developers, South African developers are sort of like this untapped resource in many regards, because I think that extremely, extremely um, sort of, they're just, South African developers are just extremely capable and extremely talented. Now, comparing that to other, some other communities, that's, it's kind of an interesting thing with that, because in some regards, I think that like when I look at I look at startups that I've seen come out of South Africa versus other communities and things like that. To be honest with you, I think that there's it's a higher quality in many regards as far as the ideas and at times even the um, ability to execute that. Um, one of the biggest challenges I see in the community it's it's twofold. I mean, it's it's some of it is difficult directly for the community to address, though I think it is trying to. So it's definitely so South Africa is definitely trying to to address many of these issues when it can. But I mean, some of it is there hasn't been as much outside investment as what I personally would like to see in the community. And I think also, um, I mean, there's always little niche that you could where you can improve. It's it's like anything, but it's I would say that probably it would be nice to I I see some opportunities for some like conferences and things like that. I think the mobile dev, dev community, it would be nice to see a little bit more traction there, but that's not just a South African thing. I think that worldwide, we're starting to see more conferences in that area, but not as many yet. Um, so I think that's an untapped area. And I think in general, there's there's just, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, the South African community from what I've seen is just, it's one of these special gems. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back because I look at the quality of the conversations on the Slack rooms and I look at, kind of the 
quality of the presentations that I've seen at these conferences versus some of the international ones. And I mean, I'm really, every time I'm blown away. And so it's really, I think to a certain degree, it's getting the word out. Um, one thing that, and it's difficult at times, I know, but it's like I've, one thing that's been something that's important to me is how do we get more South African speakers exposure on that international stage to be able to, so that people can see, you know, the, you know South African developers are extremely talented and extremely good to work with. And it's just, it's an awesome place, an awesome community. Thanks. It's really a bunch of nice stuff and useful stuff um, that you shared. Yeah, I, I, I asked that explicitly because I think, um, I mean, I know this from that that's your sentiment from conversations we've just had over the years. But I think people, the local developers need to hear that. Um, and it's not just coming from somebody else. I think we sometimes look outward too much and we don't look inward and connect as much as we can and share as much as we can. Well, that's exactly it. Because I mean, like, um, you know, so I've been on the speaker committee, for example, for Ruby Fuse of the past two years. And beyond the fact that they, there's been we, you know, part of the goal is to try to get more South African speakers, because it is a local conference. I mean, to be very honest, though, it's not like the conference these days, we get there, there are enough quality um, proposals coming from South Africa, where the conference doesn't really need to get the internationals other than just uh, getting people having a few to be able to have people talking. And I think that's a really, that says something about the community. And I mean, I'll never forget when I was, I was going to, I knew I was going to be in town during JS and SA. And so I reached out to uh, Simon and said, Hey, uh, could I give a talk there? And so he said, yeah, sure. I'll yeah, go ahead and come in and talk. And I ended up being the only foreign speaker. And it really struck me when he said, you know, one of the reasons we don't have a lot of foreign speakers is because I don't think South Africa necessarily needs them because we have a lot of talent right here. And I think he's right with that one. And I, I, I took that to heart quite a bit because, as you know, it was really an honor to be able to have the chance to speak that year. Smart guy, that Simon. <laughs> he is a, he's a very smart one, yes. <laughs> very humble. <laughs> now, we had him on two or three episodes ago. I think it's a no, well, recording wise, yeah. a few episodes ago, yeah. published wise, it just came out. You know, and I think one other thing too, it's like that really hits me is I look at just, um, I see some stories over in South Africa that just really inspire me. I mean, I mean, I can't say enough people, things like Sasanki Rising. I mean, that's just, that inspires me like you wouldn't believe. And I think it inspires a lot of people when they hear that story. And I mean, and that's something that's very uniquely South African, but it also tells the kind of the spirit of of the community to a, a great degree. Yeah, no, and thank you for every year or almost every trip bringing in like full cases of laptops. Uh, they, they they appreciate that a lot. I mean, they said it on the show we had with them, uh, and we've got an unreleased show with Kevin Trithiwi, and he also uh, gave you a shout out for for all the contributions you've done for them. Oh, it's the least I can do. I feel like it's like, if anything, it's like, I'm, it's a small piece of anything, really. But it's kind of, I guess, some of it, you know, I think some of it's just trying to do what you can to help them amplify with what you have, I, I think. And that's, um, you know, and I can't help but see, but do that, because these are people that are really putting in the work. And I mean, and I just did lots of respect for things like that. And, you know, try to do, hopefully try to do the right thing. <laughs> anything else important? Uh Chantal, Kevin, that, that you guys wanted to ask? I think we're getting pretty close to time. So I think let's leave it at that. Cool. And Lance, anything important that we that I missed uh, that you would have, uh, you know, this is a soapbox? I guess it is to a certain degree. Um, yeah, not too much other than that. 
we didn't get to talking about programming with cats, but that's um that we can talk about that another time. <laughs> I think there could be an entire episode dedicated to that. Oh, that would be a good one. Yeah, we could do a whole like you know how best practices for um, programming with cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. We can do a, a nice in-person show when you on your next trip. Yeah, I think there's still so much more to cover. It's not even funny. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, that's the whole thing. Yeah, no, definitely. Thanks for your uh, for your time. I mean, it, you've still got the whole rest of Monday left. Uh, everybody is, I guess, rubbing the red eyes, except Kevin. He likes likes being up at night. <laughs> yeah, I'm a night owl too, so that's that's perfectly fine. That's um, but I, I really, if anything, I really appreciate the. It's really an honor to be able to be on. So um, on any time, <laughs> any time. Right then, with that, I think let's head into picks. Uh, I'll start us off, so everybody else can. Get ready. So the pick I alluded to during the show that just popped in my head and I saw it's not on our pick page is uh, Loxton Lager. Uh, it's a local craft beer out of um, out of Parkhurst here in Joburg. Uh, this guy, the brewer, I believe the backstory is his wife's got family in the Karoo. So he actually uses like a Karoo herb in his beer. So it's a herb lager. It is fantastic with any meat that comes from the Karoo. So Lance next time. Um, and then this weekend, uh, me and Michelle were playing Borderlands, the pre-sequel, and it just made me realize how much I missed and loved that game, the whole Borderlands series. I know it might not be everybody's cup of tea, but yo, it's, that's a lot of fun. So those are my two picks. Uh, Kevin, do you want to go next? All right, so I've got one pick. Uh, having just been to a Go conference last week, um, it's going to be Go-related. Uh, there's a book that was published last year called uh, the ultimate guide to building database-driven apps with Go, which is basically just a, it's a short book, about 45 pages, that just takes you through the idiomatic way of using the database SQL library in the Go standard library. Uh, what, are the, what the right patterns are, what the anti-patterns are, and how to avoid common pitfalls, and it's really worth the read. Cool, thanks. Chantal? Um, I have three this week. The first is um, Rage, which is the really awesome gaming expo, which I went to last weekend. Um, I was in Joburg for the weekend, so I just took a look. And yeah, it was really interesting. Um, there was a lot of um, stuff happening. They had a lot of VR things on show. And yeah, I, I used to go in high school. It's just really interesting because at one point, um, Rage seemed to be not that popular anymore, but it definitely seems to be picking up because it was so busy on Saturday. Um, and my second pick is the Earthview um, Google Chrome plugin, which is just a plugin which shows, which displays um, satellite images from Google Earth when you open a new tab in Chrome. And yeah, it's just really um, some beautiful and amazing images. And my third pick is kind of tech related, but it also overlaps a bit with fashion. It's just um, Carl Lagerfeld, who's the creative director of Chanel, um, for Paris Fashion Week for the Chanel show, he turned the runway into a data center, which was just really interesting. So um, that sounds interesting, uh, Lance. So the the last one with the fashion show combining with the um, with with the uh, technology that's a really that's actually a really important part of wearables. So I really like that. My three, I've got a few. Um, 
<clears throat> so the first one is Ambient Lab. They are the ones that um, make the metaware that I was talking about earlier. That's definitely something to check out. Um, another one is Node MCU. That's another pick that is definitely, if you're interested in getting involved in wearables and playing around with these technologies, I think those two platforms are ones that are worth checking out. So I wanted to definitely add those to the picks. And then the third one that I'll add um, is, of course, alerting to the cats per programming.com. How did I know that was coming? I'll definitely add a link to that. I want to check that out. <laughs> You should uh, put out a programming challenge for if people want some shirts at Fuso. <laughs> yes, I need to order some more, in fact. <laughs> well, Lance, thanks a lot. Um, this has been great. Um, you know, it's always nice chatting to you. Um, it's nice to give you a bit of a, a voice. And, and hopefully now when people see you in Slack and popping up at all these different conferences, they've got a better idea of who you are and, and what you actually do. So I appreciate that. And... Um, yeah, thanks for making time in the middle of your workday. I mean, usually for everybody else, this is late on a Monday, time zones. And uh, we'll see you in February. Thanks, Lance. Definitely, and thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Cool. Thanks. Right. thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Show notes for this episode can be found on zadevchat.io. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at zadevchat or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the ZA Dev Chat podcast, and we'll see you next time.